0: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
3: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just 49 dollars Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I want to hit you with a quote. I'm sure you've heard this one a million times before. It's a quote from the American writer Upton Sinclair. uh, And the quote goes like this. He says, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not
2: understanding it. Ha. Well, that's pretty apt. Uh, I'm not sure I'd actually heard that one before, but but that certainly has a ring of truth to it.
1: Really? You never
3: heard that? I don't think i would
1: heard that one, uh, no. People roll that out all the time when they're talking about, you know, industry shills, paid mm-hmm. spokespeople, PR types. Um, yeah, yeah. So Upton Sinclair ran for governor of California in the 1930s and he claimed in a campaign retrospective that he used to
2: tell his rally audiences this. And it, it's a great line. There's plenty of truth to it, Right. Yeah. Uh, By the way, for anyone who's not familiar, Upton Sinclair lived uh, 1878 through 1968, and he was the author of The Jungle and perhaps uh, more known to some of our listeners for his 1927 story, Oil, which was loosely adapted into the 2007 film, There Will Be Blood. Always going to be remembered for a movie first.
1: But did he also write Boogie Nights?
2: The original version, <laughs> <laughs> maybe so, Joe. Maybe so. But but no, not just an author, but also a politician.
1: Yeah. So he was used to talking about uh, issues of, of public policy. I mean, he was a, a politically concerned writer. I think a lot of times people put him in categories like uh, like with Charles Dickens, you mm. know, somebody who's known for writing fiction, but also for exposing the plight of the politically disadvantaged. And so, yeah, this quote comes up a lot like if you're talking about a lawyer representing big tobacco back in the day who'd come on TV and say the science isn't settled yet. There's no proof cigarettes cause cancer or uh, maybe a coal industry lobbyist, maybe literally the same exact person comes on TV a few decades later and says, don't listen to the climate alarmists. There are scientists on both sides. You know, climate change isn't settled yet. When you're hearing from people like this who are like paid to represent a particular point of view, you obviously don't have to be a super skeptic to realize you shouldn't just take their word for it um but people who get paid to tell you that the grass is pink and the sky is green are going to keep saying that you know you're not going to change their mind by offering them evidence or making good points or something because they're not here to figure
2: out what's true they're here to say their lines yeah i'm i'm always reminded of the the doctor character who would inevitably show up in the late night infomercials for various products right um, you know, clearly they didn't just do a cold call and get <laughs> get somebody in there to uh, to to shill for this product.
1: Only Marlborough stimulates your Q zone. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to people like that, I guess this is kind of a tangent. But when it, when it comes to like people who shill for a particular you know point of view or are spokespeople for some kind of line on TV, I always kind of wonder like. Do they end up really truly believing the thing that they're paid to say or is there some kind of cognitive dissonance in their brain? I don't know what it's like to be in that mind.
2: Yeah, that's a great question, though, because, I mean, it's one thing for just uh, like an individual to endorse a product, you know. So, oh, yeah, like reading an ad. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, or, or even saying, hey, I tried out this product. It's really great. Uh, you guys should give it a try as well, uh, which obviously we do on the show. But, uh, but, it, but when you get to that level where you have an expert, when you have, say, a medical doctor um, appearing on an infomercial or appearing even, um, you know, in some sort of governmental body and saying, yes, I stake my reputation on this, I state my professional um, uh, expertise. Uh, um, I put it on the line in support of this product or this industry,
1: and directly contradicting what appears to be the preponderance of the evidence. Yes, right. That—that's what these industry shills come out to do, right? They come out to tell you that the scientists are wrong. But anyway. Given evidence that has emerged in recent years, I think maybe later on in this episode, we should come back and try to do an updated version of this Upton Sinclair quote, because I think that the scope of this quote is actually too limited by just focusing on the salary. So so we'll come back to this. Uh, But today we're going to be talking about a form of motivated reasoning, a form of motivated reasoning called motivated numeracy, and specifically uh, how that relates to the idea of identity protection protective cognition. And this Mm. has come up on the show before. We talked about it in an episode a while back called Science Communication Breakdown. I think that was like a year and a half ago or so. I believe so, yeah. Uh, But it was based on when you had gone to the World Science Festival and seen a talk that included the work of the Yale psychologist Dan Kahan, who is – he does a lot of really interesting research about – Biases and motivated reasoning and the ways in which our brains fail to be rational in one way, sometimes by being uh sort of
2: subversively rational in another way, yeah, isn't it interesting how we sometimes uh, seem to outsmart ourselves in these matters <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh so
1: I, I want to start by thinking about two different kinds of disagreements that come up when people talk about politics. there are obviously lots of different ways people can disagree about politics here here are two different kinds of currently politically relevant statements. One is somebody who says, the government shouldn't have a right to tax my income, right? You might talk to like a libertarian who says that. Mm -hmm. And then here's a different politically relevant statement. Human activity is the primary driver of global climate change. Now, people have political arguments over statements like both of these two all the time, but these are not at all the same kind of statement. One big difference is that the first statement is a statement about values. Like you can't do a bunch of empirical experiments to determine if it's correct or not that the government should be allowed to tax people. That's just a question about what you believe should be the case, What about values and priorities, and about the priorities of the person making the statement.
2: Right. It's a it's a it's a commentary on how you think or how one group thinks uh, politics should work or how government should work rather, uh, and. We shouldn't be confused by the idea of of political science. Political science, though, uh, uh, a serious field, is a different matter uh, compared to uh, the natural sciences.
1: Well, it's certainly true that with questions about like uh – whether or not you should tax income, you can approach that question from the point of optimizing for certain goals. Like if Mm. you specify a goal and you compare different methods of achieving that goal, then you can do that. But like absent all of that kind of framework, that's just a statement about values. On the other hand, you've got the human activity is the primary driver of global climate change. That statement is not like that. There simply is a fact of the matter. Either human activity is the primary cause of global climate change or it isn't. And you can do empirical experiments to test this hypothesis. And of course, the answer is that yes, we now know that it is the primary driver of global climate change with like a, you know, 90-something percent certainty. It's We really, really strongly know this now. Yeah, this is undoubtedly the scientific consensus. Even though this question is politically controversial, it's not scientifically controversial. And if you doubt this, you actually have the ability to go look up the evidence yourself, especially uh, that's one thing that the internet is great for. You can go read the most recent IPCC report. You can read the thousands of individual studies. You can look at the data and read the climate scientists' own words about how their conclusions are drawn from the data of their experiments. And if you actually do that, I think any reasonable person should be able to conclude, of course, human activity is the primary cause of climate change. And yet, that's not what happens, is it? Questions like this remain politically controversial with people often judging the answer in a way that aligns with their political identity.
2: Now, speaking of politics, I just want to throw in a, a quick fact, Lloyd, here about the, this episode. We were recording this on Election Day. <laughs> it will be uh, published after Election Day. So. Oh, yeah. So we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Yet. Yeah. So, uh, so none, of this, uh, none of this is a commentary on things that have not yet occurred uh, as of this recording. Yeah, and it's not really a commentary on
1: politics per se. No. It's a commentary on psychology, really, uh, that that is going to be at play in people of all political persuasions. Exactly. So I think we should turn to look at the uh, the big paper that we're going to be focusing on in this episode. The The lead author was was Dan Cahan, but the other authors include Ellen Peters, Erica Cantrell Dawson, and Paul Slovic. And it's called Motivated Numeracy and Enlightened Self-Government, published in Behavioral Public Policy. Uh, I think first published in 2013, revised in 2017. And they start off by observing the same kind of thing we've just been talking about, that Obviously, there are questions where people can argue about their political values, but that politics is also full of these arguments about purely empirical questions, uh, many of which are no longer in fact empirically controversial. Like, is climate change driven by greenhouse gas emissions? The answer is yes, Uh, but this is still politically controversial. Other questions like this, they give a big list of them. One would be like, could we improve public safety by storing nuclear waste deep underground?
2: And that one is a yes as well, I believe. That's one that uh, was brought up in the, uh, the panel at World Science Festival that Kahan spoke on. Yeah. And that was one that actually I uh, seemed to um, be more divisive. Uh, um, uh, they kind of pulled the audience there at the World Science Festival. So, you know, uh, for the most part, a very informed and curious bunch. Right. But even they were not uh, as well-informed – uh, on this issue as they were on some of these other issues we're talking about here.
1: Yeah. Now, not all of these questions are going to be as settled with as much confidence as other ones are. Mm-hmm. So, like, we have very high confidence now that greenhouse gas emissions are driving climate change. But there could be other questions that are in theory empirical even if we don't have a scientific consensus yet. I honestly don't know where this w- this next question falls in, whether it's more settled or less settled. But other questions would include Include things like, uh, do gun control measures reduce violent crime or increase it? Uh, Does public spending in the uh, aftermath of an economic recession increase the length of the recession or shorten it? And so with some of these questions, we don't always yet know the correct answer, but they are at least empirical. You can do tests and you can gather data and you can find with some degree of confidence that there is a correct answer. It's not just going to be an endless contest of values.
2: Yes, it's in the domain of science, and science can have at it. One of the interesting things about a lot of these questions is that
1: they, for some reason, almost always seem to concern uh, questions or perceptions of risk. Mm. I guess maybe that's just what politics is about.
2: Yeah, I think there is a lot of uh, risk analysis in politics. I mean, obviously, there's 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 always a certain amount of fear-mongering as well, mm-hmm. uh, like how do you – how do you capitalize on the sort of risks that, uh, that voters are considering? How do you potentially uh, stir up the flames or, uh, uh, or, or, or tamp them down a bit depending on what kind of uh, reaction you're looking for? Well, I guess
1: you could look at many major policy decisions as, um, as conflicts between perceptions of different kinds of risks. Right, like so, somebody will say, "Well, there's a certain amount of risk we're running by not doing anything about global climate change." Here are the things that could result, and somebody else says, "Yes, but if we do something about it, we risk—I don't know—we we risk not making enough money or something,
2: mm-hmm. or per, or perhaps it's yeah, we risk hurting ourselves in the short term or what? A, a lot of times, it's short-term risk versus long-term risk, immediate risk versus more uh, you know elusive risks.
1: Yeah. Now, obviously, when you look at these questions that have been pretty convincingly answered with empirical evidence and yet intense disagreement persists in politics, this obviously isn't helpful. Like there's enough under dispute over what values should drive public policy that it really doesn't help to add to that like unnecessary dead-end disputes about underlying empirical facts when the science or the the facts are actually pretty clear. So the question is why? How come you can have a question? where the evidence is very clear, such as the cause of climate change uh, being related to the burning of fossil fuels, but the public not being in general agreement about it. And this, this paper looks at two major competing hypotheses to explain this, like why people don't accept the facts when the facts are pretty clear. And the first one is the hypothesis they call the science comprehension thesis or the SCT. And basically, it goes like this. The public, in general, has a pretty weak understanding of science. We are likely to misunderstand what scientists are telling us. If you put a scientific paper in front of us, we're probably not going to understand it. Thus, we're likely to be misled by people who are trying to deceive us to their own advantage. And I think, unfortunately – or well, I don't want to preempt what we get to in a bit, but I I guess we could say unfortunately – this hypothesis is pretty common among skeptics and science enthusiasts and even scientists themselves. And I feel myself very drawn to it uh, because if you accept that the problem is um, we're just not scientifically literate enough to understand what's being talked about, in a way this is actually kind of hopeful, especially if you're an educator or a science communicator, because the problem is simply a lack of knowledge. There's just a deficit that can be made up. And so if you just, you know, communi- You give people better scientific education, better communication of the scientific reality. Uh, under this hypothesis, if you just teach people better scientific literacy skills, they will finally see the light and come around and accept the empirically verifiable
2: facts. Yeah, there's hope in this because you can you can teach people about science. You can you can teach people more about logical thinking as well. Um, and, and, and though, of course, I think that's clearly part of scientific literacy uh, as well. Uh, but but I can't help but think back to for instance carl sagan's discussion of on the um, the baloney detection kit like the problem is people don't have the kit online right, or they don't have all the tools in the kit uh for instance just to just to blow through these really quickly, he goes into far more detail in the demon uh, haunted world uh but uh, the nine tools are uh, and again abbreviated number one whenever possible, there must be independent confirmation of the facts. Facts in quotation marks. Uh, Number two, encourage a substantive debate on the evidence by knowledgeable proponents of all points of view. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Number three, arguments from authority carry little weight. Authorities have made mistakes in the past. They will do so again in the future. In science, there are no authorities. At most, there are experts. Okay. Number four, spin more than one hypothesis. Okay. Number five, try not to get overly attached to a hypothesis just because it's yours. That one's hard. Yeah. Number six, quantify. If whatever it is you're explaining has some measure, some numerical quantity attached to it, you'll be much better able to discriminate among competing hypotheses. This is why numbers are often useful in science. Yeah. Exactly. Number seven, if there is a chain of argument, every link in the chain must work, including the premise, not just most of them. Hmm. Number eight, Occam's Razor. This is basically when you have uh, uh, two hypotheses that explain data equally well, you choose the simpler of the two.
1: Right. So like a dream or a hallucination is probably a better explanation for your alien abduction experience than aliens coming here. Exactly.
2: And then finally, the ninth tool in the uh, baloney detection kit, always ask whether the hypothesis can be, at least in principle, falsified. Propositions that are untestable or unfalsifiable are not worth much. Uh, That's a really good kit. And
1: I think Carl Sagan, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but mm-hmm. I do think he, he seems to operate from that kind of hopeful scientific comprehension thesis point of view, uh, at least as best I can tell. It seems like he thinks, you know, the problem with the lack of scientific skepticism among the people is just that they need access to better tools like this. And mm-hmm. if we can communicate those tools to them, they can bring them online and then they'll be more protected against the titular baloney. Yeah, I think so. Now, back to this paper, the authors write that on this hypothesis, on the science comprehension thesis, the lack of comprehension skill causes people to over-rely on what's, called, what's known as system one thinking when judging empirical scientific questions like perceptions of risk. Now, uh, we, we should mention a little bit about the difference between these concepts of system one thinking and system two thinking. This is big in the works of uh, people like Daniel Kahneman, who've written about behavioral economics and the psychology of bias and Stuff.
2: That's right. It was key to his 2011 book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Um, and we've talked about System One thinking and System Two thinking on the show before. I think. I think um, so. Yeah. The basic uh, explanation here: is System One thinking is all about fast, automatic, frequent, emotional, stereotypic, and unconscious thinking.
1: This is the, ther- uh, the this is ruled by heuristics. You know, mm-hmm. shortcut ways of thinking. When you uh, when you look at two piles of things and want to know how many, you know, which pile has more things in it if you just judge by i don't know you eyeball it that's system one system two thinking would be what maybe you count the things in the pile
2: right it is slow effortful infrequent logical calculating and conscious this reminds me a lot of the the two fear networks that we recently discussed in the show
1: oh yeah in the uh, the slayer
2: episode yeah System two is all about avoiding the tiger-haunted uh, thickets. While if you rely on system one, then you're more of a tiger racer, a tiger boxer, or just, I guess, a, just a straight-up tiger denier.
1: And, you know, both of those systems are necessary, actually, because yeah. we don't always have time to do deliberate, slow, logical, calculating, conscious thought. A lot, You know, if we did that about every decision we made, we couldn't live. That would be no way to survive. You have to be fast and reactive and unconscious about all kinds of things. And so the question is, how do you choose which types of decisions and scenarios to apply these two different uh, thinking schema to? On the science comprehension thesis, I think the idea is that people are uh, relying on system one thinking to answer empirical questions about science that are politically relevant, whereas they should be using their system two thinking to get through the the fast, reactive, stereotypic kind of thinking and, and come to the correct answer.
2: Fun fact, uh, we used to be owned by a company that called itself System One, uh, named after this this mode of thinking. But that's not the only hypothesis on offer. That's the science comprehension
1: thesis. The other hypothesis, the rival hypothesis is what if the problem with controversies over empirical questions is not – that they're caused by a deficit of knowledge or cognitive skill. Uh, And this other idea the authors call the identity protective cognition thesis or the ICT. they write, quote, whereas SCT attributes conflicts over decision-relevant science to deficits in science comprehension – ICT sees the public's otherwise intact capacity to comprehend decision-relevant science as disabled by cultural and political conflict. In other words, it's not that people can't understand the science. It's that they could understand the issue if they were not politically charged, and it is specifically the political charging of the issue that makes it impossible for them to understand what they otherwise might be
2: able to. All right. So I have to try and put this into tiger terms. OK. So it, it's like having the capabilities to avoid tiger kill zones but refusing to do so for political reasons.
1: Right. Yes. Uh, all your friends around you maybe are saying like, oh, no, that, the people who say that the tigers hang out in the jungle are dumb. They are the <laughs> bad people. Real people, re, the good people all know that there are no tigers in the jungle, that the tigers are somewhere else.
2: I do admit I love it anytime we can put things in terms of uh, big cat attacks. That always just seems to really help uh, explain a topic. You should
1: know I'm picturing not a real tiger but Tony the tiger, yet Tony the tiger mauling and killing people. All right. That works for me. Okay, So here's the question. If this hypothesis is correct, why would it be the case that political charging of issues – would make us unable to use our normal reasoning faculties. Well, first of all, I mean, think about the Upton Sinclair quote. It's difficult to make a person understand something when their salary depends on it. Here, we're not talking about a salary, but about something else of immense psychic and material value, and that is your membership, status, and standing within a social group that is in part defined by its commitment
2: to certain moral and political values. Well, I think that's very much like salary. I mean, salary is money. Money is life. Money is happiness. I mean, we say it's not, but it is. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, and then, uh, but but it is the thing that allows us to eat and live and be in most circumstances. Certainly, in the world that we've 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 made and remade for ourselves and likewise uh, in a more primal sense belonging to a group being part of a, of a group that is that is survival for for the, the homo sapiens yeah that is, that is how we have historically and prehistorically managed to live it's
1: psychically necessary to us it's necessary for us to have good mental and in fact I think in some ways good physical health mm-hmm. uh, to be a member in good standing of a social group and a social network but if you want to go into our you know Know, our our uh, evolutionary history, it is literally materially necessary to be accepted as a member of the in-group. If you're driven out of your hunter-gatherer tribe, that things are not looking good for you. You're just
2: waiting to fall into a tiger thicket at that point.
1: Right. And so if all your friends and allies believe one way about any politically charged issue, climate change or gun control or whatever – And you put yourself at huge personal risk by advocating a position that that group disagrees with. You could be alienated from your social group. You could lose connections that you depend on for mental health and survival. Thus, you could definitely see identity protective cognition as a kind of mental immune system. It protects the brain from beliefs that could potentially cause you immense harm if you were to express them. The brain detects a belief or an idea that is a threat to your social identity And it puts up a wall against that belief and doesn't let it in because it could
2: hurt you. You know, and I think we can all relate to this on one level or another. Uh, you know, how many times have any of us said, well, I refuse to believe that or I find that hard to believe. Right. Uh, and, and of course, there are a lot of examples that come up um, in, in which the, the issues relate more clearly to personal belief and and or just pure opinion and artistic value. For instance, if a, if a movie reviewer, television reviewer tells me that an upcoming Coen Brothers movie isn't worth seeing, I generally find that hard to believe. <laughs> Until I see it for myself, and say, in the case of Inside Lewin Davis, uh, I end up agreeing with
1: them. what Inside Lewin Davis. Uh,
2: you know, it was wonderfully made. Prepare to be ostracized. <laughs> <laughs> but you no, know, it was wonderfully made. But it was just not
1: my cup of tea. Oh, uh, I loved it. I love it. Oscar Isaac. It was oh man, he, he's such a great singer too. The music oh, in it no, was that, wonderful. That the
2: music was was great. It just it did not. Uh, it did not make me happy. Well, or make me sad in an interesting way. You know what? I I
1: will I will do my best not to fully alienate you and throw you
2: out into the cold. (laughs) So, but that's one thing, right? Ultimately, we're coming down to art and personal opinion, Uh, and and there are I think there are going to be certain areas where you are going to be so attached to certain artistic values that you're going to feel reluctant to state it uh, because of how it might affect your standing in a group. Oh, yeah. So that's a a
1: different kind of variation. Like there are some unpopular... Are aesthetic opinions that you're not really scared to voice because you could abandon them if you needed to maybe, but mm-hmm. a really deeply held aesthetic preference that would be un- unpopular, you maybe just don't even bring up.
2: Yeah, like imagine aband- abandoning, suddenly abandoning your favorite rock band in high school, you know, that sort of thing. But but clearly, you know, a, a lot of these other issues uh, are also are going to be different matters. Say matters of hearsay or something that's just not completely provable one way or another. Uh, say some bit of dirt on a political candidate that can to be confirmed nor denied. Uh, but then we have to come back to those empirical questions, the ones where science can and does weigh in on the matter.
1: Yes, and fortunately, as the authors point out, not that many empirical questions are really likely to trigger identity-protective cognition. Only empirical questions that are unfortunate enough to get tagged as politically significant along partisan lines really acquired this taint. Uh, for example, you know, there's been a partisan divide over the HPV vaccine, probably because it has some kind of perceived Relevance to sexual morality in young people, but there's no partisan divide on the use of antibiotics to treat bacterial infections. And most questions are more like the antibiotics. There's just there's not a partisan divide about at what you know temperature water boils, or you know, 99% of scientific questions, there's just not really a partisan divide on. Though to come back to antibiotics, I see a, I see a dark future. I see there could be a time where if members of one major political party but not the other happen to start talking about antibiotics, I think you could quite easily see partisan associations arise and antibiotics could go from an issue that's non-politicized where pretty much everybody agrees to an issue that suddenly is divided along partisan lines.
2: Hmm. No, that, that seems sadly like the kind of thing we would do.
1: But to come back... On the other side, OK, wait a minute. Don't people also have an incentive
2: to have correct beliefs? Obviously, right? I mean – Right. Yeah. I mean we. It, it definitely pays off to have a working, realistic model of how the world works that you live in.
1: But it pays off in some ways that are much more personally immediately relevant than others uh, depending on the issue. Think about it. In policy-relevant empirical questions like the impact of carbon emissions or the impact of gun control policies, the consequence of one individual person being wrong is vanishingly small – but for that one person, the consequence of being alienated from their identity group is potentially massive. So on one decision, you potentially cast one vote out of millions for a poorly reasoned public policy. And on the other decision, you could alienate or weaken your most important friendships, your work relationships, and even your sense of self. Um, and so the authors write, quote, Persistent conflict over risks and other policy-relevant facts reflects a tragedy of the science communications commons. (laughs) A misalignment between the individual interests that culturally diverse citizens have in forming beliefs that connect them to others who share their distinctive understanding of the best life and the collective interests that members of all such groups share in the enactment of public policies that enable them to pursue their ends free from threats to their health and prosperity. Okay, maybe we should take a quick break, and when we come back, we can take a look at uh, how we can compare these two hypotheses.
2: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. All right, we're back. So yeah, we're going to look at ways to compare these two hypotheses. Now, of course, in all of this, I can't help but think, you know, well, well, why can't it be both? Why can't, why well, can't we have like both of these, uh, these, uh, these reasons in play? You mean that – so we've got the two hypotheses,
1: the science comprehension thesis, Mm -hmm. which says that people come to incorrect beliefs about scientifically or politically relevant empirical questions because they lack the scientific literacy skills to understand the issues. And then the other one says it's not that they lack the skills to understand the issues. It's that they are being selectively blinded from proper reasoning by uh, identity protective cognition that is socially conditioned.
2: Right. The idea – coming back to Sagan's toolkit. It's like, do I not have the tools or is there just this like this – there is a social uh, and psychological reason for not using the tools that I have?
1: Well, I think technically you could have both in a way. So the question would be um – can you show that these are are mutually exclusive and that would come through in the evidence but mm-hmm. you certainly could have uh, a, a population that has fewer science comprehension skills than it could and so you could educate people in science better and we would have higher scientific comprehension skills but also within that population identity protective cognition could be highly salient so that's a good question uh, but if you want to pit these two hypotheses against each other, you can create just create conditions where they're obviously going to be antagonistic uh, as far as the data is concerned. So here's one idea. If the science comprehension thesis is correct, right, the problem is a deficit in understanding science— people who are better at drawing correct conclusions from scientific data will be better at it whether or not the data concerns politically relevant issues, right? So it should mean that if the SCT is correct, the science comprehension thesis – it should mean that if you have scientific understanding skills like numeracy, which is skill at using numbers and drawing conclusions from, uh, from quantitative data, if you have high numeracy, you should be better at drawing the correct conclusions from data whether or not that data flatters your political perceptions. <laughs> Um, On the other hand, if the identity protective cognition thesis is correct, people who are better at drawing correct conclusions from scientific data will see this skill significantly hampered by the introduction of a political identity threat.
2: All right, so I have a feeling we're going to we're going
1: to look at some experiments now. Uh, yes, so the experiment is a big sample of 1111 demographically diverse and ideologically diverse US adults. Uh, and you sort them according to a couple of major factors. One is political ideology, so they're sorted on a, on a scale of how liberal or conservative they rate themselves. And then the next is their numeracy skills determined by a numeracy test. The authors write, quote, "a well-established and highly studied construct, a numeracy" encompasses not just mathematical ability, but also a disposition to engage quantitative information in a reflective and systematic way and to use it to support valid inferences. So it's not just being good at math, but it's being able to say, look at data in a study and figure out what that data should tell you. So the authors came up with a couple of fictional experiments, and they took the results of these fictional experiments and asked the participants to draw conclusions based on the results they showed them. Now, both the results of the fictional experiment and the topic of the experiment were manipulated to create different test conditions. So the same results were offered in the context of either being about, quote, the effectiveness of a new skin rash treatment or, quote, the effectiveness of a ban on carrying concealed weapons in public – one of those is going to be more controversial than the other.: Right. So uh, what they're saying is they, they expect that the skin rash treatment is not going to have any partisan significance, unless, I don't know, major Republicans or Democrats start talking about skin rashes a lot. But at this point, it was not politically uh, relevant. The other is, of course, being about guns, which is one of the most highly charged, politically charged topics uh, where people break down along partisan lines. OK. So imagine you're one of the people who's a subject in this experiment. They will give you a, uh, a, a table of results to look at. And it might say – say it's you're in the skin rash condition. It might – you'll have a table of four numbers and the different numbers represent patients who did use a new skin cream and patients who did not use a new skin cream. And then the other axes of the table will be Patients whose rash got worse and patients whose rash got better. And then you need to determine based on the numbers in the table whether the skin cream is more helpful or more harmful. And then substitute in the exact same thing for instead of patients using a skin cream, cities that did or did not ban carrying uh, concealed handguns in public. And instead of the rash getting worse or the rash getting better, it's crime went down or crime went up. So the authors had three hypotheses, three that they would test here. One is that they guessed subjects scoring high in numeracy would be more likely to get the right result in both skin treatment conditions. And this is pretty straightforward. Basically, they're saying people who have higher numeracy skills are more likely to use deliberate system two thinking to work out the covariance between the results and draw the correct conclusions. They're more likely to get the skin rash thing right. Hypothesis 2 is based on the science comprehension thesis. So if the science comprehension thesis is correct, they predict that subjects scoring higher in numeracy would be more likely to construe the data correctly not only when it was consistent with their ideological predispositions but also when it was inconsistent with them and thus they were uh, likely to display less ideological polarization than subjects lower in numeracy. In other words, on the science comprehension thesis, if you're better at understanding quantitative science, your interpretation of the results of the gun ban thing should be less affected by political bias. And then finally, they have a third hypothesis based on the identity-protective cognition thesis. Quote, ideological polarization in the gun ban conditions should be most extreme among those highest in numeracy. Under this hypothesis, people high in numeracy are not immune from identity-protective cognition and will, like everyone else, always seek ways to affirm their existing political beliefs. But using their numeracy skills, they can use system two thinking to draw correct but counterintuitive inferences from the data when it flatters their beliefs but detect that they should skip this and use quick heuristics to arrive at the wrong answer when that flatters their beliefs. Oh, wow. So, quote, If high-numeracy subjects use their special cognitive advantage selectively, only when doing so generates an ideologically congenial answer but not otherwise, they'll end up even more polarized than their low-numeracy counterparts. And so here we get to the results. So first thing worth noting is that detecting covariance is difficult if you're not experienced in it. So across all test conditions, most people got the answers wrong. Uh, All test conditions combined, 59% of subjects supplied the incorrect answer. Uh, And this is probably because if you just look at the numbers and use a quick heuristic or system one thinking, you're likely to draw the opposite of the correct conclusion. You'd actually have to do the math and compare some ratios to come up with the correct answer. But the results found hypothesis one, which was that if you're high in numeracy, you've got a better chance of getting the skin rash results correct. That was supported by the data. The better you are at numeracy, the more likely you are to draw correct inferences from politically neutral data, though most people were not very good at this. Um, Hypothesis two – which would be consistent with the scientific comprehension thesis that people high in numeracy will show less polarization on the gun ban condition, this was not supported by the data. Conversely, hypothesis three was supported by the data. And and that one was that people with high numeracy skills will show even more ideologically polarized judgments about the results in the gun ban condition. And so what the authors conclude is that high-numeracy partisans use their skills selectively. When a laborious System 2 calculation will yield results that are flattering to your political point of view, you'll do it. But when it threatens your point of view, you'll skip it. You'll skip System 2 reasoning and just draw incorrect heuristic conclusions. Uh, And so a a few takeaways here I think we should think about while we're discussing this. One is that – I should stress this study doesn't show that science education and science communication efforts are pointless or bad or anything like that. Science comprehension skills, including numeracy, are crucial for answering all kinds of questions accurately when a system one heuristic model would cause you to come to the wrong conclusion. So it's kind of the baseline, right? You've got to have scientific comprehension skills. But – If these results are valid, what they do show is that science comprehension skills are not necessarily a protection against getting politically charged science questions wrong because the brain uses its science comprehension skills selectively. It's more likely to bring out the big guns if they will help it protect its identity, and it's more likely to surrender to heuristic thinking if that's what protects your identity. Another way of putting it, political identity can make you selectively bad at math even if you're normally good at math.
2: And so, in, in this, we this is where we get into some of these areas where we see, say, uh, you know, an individual um, that uh, that has a scientific background or PhD or what have you uh, that you see showing up on the side of, say, climate change deniers, or or even something more um, uh, ridiculous like a like a like a flat Earth uh, belief system.
1: Yeah, I almost never see it with flat Earth beliefs, but you do see it with climate change. And oh, yes, most no- definitely. What you notice with climate change is that, like. Um, Sometimes people will come up with lists of scientists who don't agree with the consensus on climate change. And usually almost none of them work in fields relevant to climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're not like climate scientists. I'm not saying there are no climate scientists that disagree, but there are almost none. Right? Um, they tend
2: to be somebody like one example that often comes up. And uh, I honestly can't remember to what extent his disagreement is with it. But say Freeman Dyson is an individual of note who has at least at times – cast some doubt uh, in the area. But as brilliant as as Freeman Dyson is and was, he's not a climate scientist.
1: Right. It tends to be people commenting outside their area of expertise. And yet they still have the aura of credibility because it's like, well, these are smart people. They're scientists, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, you'll see a list of scientists who don't accept the the consensus on climate change. And they might be like petroleum engineers and stuff like that, you know. So it's like – not like petroleum engineers aren't smart i mean the, i'm sure all all these people are very smart people but it's just that having scientific comprehension skills does not protect you against arriving at malinformed bad conclusions that support your identity
2: now, of course, one of the, the tools in Sagan's toolkit had to do with replication. Yes. Uh, so
1: that's always a big question. And in fact, I, I found one thing that I wanted to explore real quickly. If you follow psychology research and you saw something about motivated numeracy failing replication in a recent study – uh, I think that's probably a reference to a conference paper draft presented in 2017 that claimed as part of its findings to fail to replicate the motivated numeracy effect. And then Dan Kahan and Ellen Peters, two of the original authors of the first paper we were talking about in a 2017 response, defended their paper, as best as I can tell, quite successfully by pointing out that the study that failed to replicate the motivated reasoning effect, uh, number one, had a very small sample size of and 55 and was Ideologically homogenous. it was basically ninety-five percent liberal. Okay. And in a paper called "Rumors of the Non-Replication of the Motivated Numeracy Effect Are Greatly Exaggerated," uh, <laughs> Kahan and Peters they uh, so they they argue against this supposed failed replication, and they also present the ro- results of their own replication attempt with a uh, with a sample size of fifteen hundred ninety six, in which they did successfully replicate the findings of the original very closely. And so uh, as far as I can tell, motivated numeracy through identity through identity protective cognition is still pretty solid. It, it looks solid to me and also as far as I can tell, that's not just me defending a cherished belief that's important to my identity through motivated judgment because in fact, I find I strongly dislike the idea of identity protective cognition. Uh, I, I think I would much rather live in the world of so many of our anthropogenic climate change accepting peers and where – you know, it's the world where if you could just – just educate people enough with better science literacy skills these dead end public disputes over pretty solid empirical science could be resolved
2: Well, it means you could essentially win an argument over these issues by presenting facts presenting data
1: and that's how a lot of these you know like sciencey people want it to be like that right sciency people want to say well i can i'll just bring more evidence you know i'll show up with even more references next time and that'll get them <laughs> But I'm afraid the evidence seems to be coming in that it doesn't necessarily work that way. And maybe – and, you know, we shouldn't be all or nothing in the way we talk about things. Different, different types of appeals will work with different people. But on average, that does not appear to be how people work.
2: All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to expand on the, the concept a little bit and talk about what can possibly be done. And talk about Scott Steiner. Oh, yes. Today's episode
1: is brought to you by eBay
2: All right, we're back. Uh, so, Joe, were you familiar with uh, Scott Steiner before I uh, mentioned him to you?
1: I, I was not tremendously familiar, mm-hmm. but you sent me the best video I've seen all week.
2: <laughs> yeah, so this uh, this was a video, and this is readily available um, online because it, it, it kind of went viral and became its own meme. But, uh, yeah, it's a video of professional wrestler Scott Steiner. A.K.A. Big Papa Pump. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, oh, of, I,
1: I think I knew him better by that name.
2: Yeah, that, yeah, that was a moniker he adopted at one point. Uh, and it's, uh, this is a clip from uh, a wrestling promotion that was known in, in uh, 2008 as TNA. The promotion is now called Impact. And uh, Steiner launched into a backstage promo that, in typical pro wrestling fashion, is all shouty and laced in macho bravada. Mm-hmm. But in a twist, it's also full of math and statistics. <laughs> <laughs> so he makes the follow- highly rigorous yes, yes yes and in this particular promo he makes the following claims i'm just going to roll through these okay uh, in a normal human voice lay it on me okay so he points out that normally a wrestler has a 50 50 chance of winning a match okay all um, else being equal sure okay yeah uh, but given his uh big papa pumps superior genetics um his opponent samoa joe only has a 25 percent chance of winning oh no but it's a three-way match as well, and it involves Kurt Angle. So each <laughs> per- participant here has a 33 and a third percent chance of winning. Hmm. But, he, but since Kurt Angle, according to, to Steiner, knows that he cannot win, he won't try. Uh, so Steiner presses the following point. <laughs> Quote, so Samoa Joe, you take your 33 and one third chance minus my 25 percent chance and you have an eight and one third chance of winning at sacrifice. (laughs) Sacrifice being the name of the uh, pro wrestling event. Uh. But when you take my 75 percent chance of winning, if we were to go one on one and then add 66 and two thirds percents. I got 141 and two-thirds chance of winning at Sacrifice. Uh-huh. See, Samoa Joe, the numbers don't lie, and they spell disaster for you at Sacrifice. Did so, you watch Sacrifice? Were you there? I did not. I was not uh, there. I did uh, watch some clips from it. It looks like it was uh, you a know, pretty uh, hard-hitting match. Uh, interestingly enough... Um, Samoa Joe won. Oh, man. However, Kurt Angle was injured and had to be replaced by another wrestler. So one assumes that that would have changed the equation somewhat. Wow.
1: Despite having a negative 41% chance of winning, (laughs) he
2: won. (laughs) So, um, yeah, but but as Steiner says, the numbers don't lie. uh, Or do they? Is is this uh, admittedly a ridiculous example? Is this... Is this Scott Steiner falling prey to a lack of understanding regarding uh, numeracy, or is it motivated numeracy? Is he just so highly motivated by his <laughs> dislike of Samoa Joe and his belief in his own superior genetics that he just so uh, you know readily mishandles them?
1: Uh, it might be a better example of a mathematical incarnation of the Dunning Kruger effect. I'm oh, that's, not sure, but uh,
2: this is where you it, believe that you have more fluency in a particular. Um, uh, area than you actually do.
1: Yes uh, the we, we, sh- we should get into it one time, the dunning-kruger effect because there's a I know there is a more nuanced understanding of it than you usually see when it's deployed in the media and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the basic idea is that uh, with the Dunning-Kruger effect, if you are not very good within a skill set or within a knowledge domain, you also lack the metacognitive capacities to understand what would make somebody good at it. Thus, you fail to grasp your own shortcomings. And thus, people who are very low skilled or very low knowledge in a certain domain tend to vastly overestimate their skills or their knowledge because they can't know – they can't. Know what they don't know.
2: All right. Well, I realize that this example was was maybe more uh, entertaining than helpful. Still, my only opportunity to really uh, work Scott Steiner into an episode.
1: Come on, we've been plowing through a psychology paper. We gotta have a little
2: <laughs> wrestling to lighten the load. All right. Well, well. Now that we've lightened the the load, let's let's come back to like the big remaining question. If uh, if motivated numeracy uh, is the the key thing that's happening here, if this is the the enemy, the threat, then how do we deal with
1: it? Yeah. Like w- what can be done? And so one thing I would take away from this research is that good science education and science communication are necessary but not sufficient. Necessary but not sufficient to produce a correctly informed citizenry. You can't have people making good judgments without understanding the facts. But the better they understand the facts, the more they'll use their understanding to support their identity-derived point of view. So Kahan and others propose that the way to beat motivated reasoning is not necessarily to improve the reasoning but to remove the motivation. To remove
2: the motivation. Uh, I like that. That reminds me so much of uh, Krishna's words to Arjuna in the the Hindu epic, uh, the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, Oh, yeah. 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 If 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 I may, I'd like to read, uh, you know, because having come from the quoting Scott Steiner, I obviously want to move on. to to Other high literature. Yes. Uh, So uh, this is these are the words of, uh, of Krishna. That man alone is wise who keeps the mastery of himself. If one ponders on objects of the sense, there springs attraction from attraction grows desire, desire flames to fierce passion. Passion breeds recklessness, then the memory, all betrayed, lets noble purpose go and saps the mind, till purpose, mind, and man are all undone. But if one deals with objects of the sense, not loving and not hating, making them serve his free soul, which rest serenely, Lord, lo, such a man comes to tranquility and out of that tranquility shall rise the end and healing of his earthly pains since the will-governed sets the soul at peace.
1: Oh, I'd say the will-governed is much easier said than done, isn't it?
2: Oh, yeah, I mean that's why we've uh, clearly we're still struggling with it. And uh, you know, and I don't want to, you know, obviously this is a this is a work of uh, you know, immense literary significance and uh and deep philosophy, but but yeah, this idea of of acting without passion seems to to line up uh, reasonably well with this idea of tackling various, um, uh, you know, innumerable um, uh, problems without uh, bringing in this political motivation.
1: Yeah, though, of course, it, it seems very unfortunate that I think a lot of this motivation comes in unconsciously, right? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, we, we, I guess we haven't really addressed this so far, but you have to assume – The people are not generally, and you probably know from your own experience, at least if it's like mine, they're not generally thinking like, okay, how should I trick myself right now to come to the wrong conclusion Mm -hmm. because it would be socially acceptable? It doesn't feel like that to think about political issues that are, you know, or empirical issues that are politically relevant. Um, It just feels like, well, I'm just trying to figure out what's right. But obviously, I must be doing this at least sometimes.
2: Yeah, we're just kind of – we're often just – we're swimming through life. We're not necessarily thinking about the individual strokes. Yeah. You know, it it all kind of comes together and we end up making these mistakes in cognition.
1: And to reemphasize what the authors of that original paper were talking about, uh, I mean – In a way, this is rational. It's rational in a perverse way, not in a good way that ultimately creates the most benefit. But in a kind of short-term perversity, it is rational. Like you will sometimes hear people talking about uh, or lamenting in politics how others just won't do what's rational. But given a certain interpretation of rational self-interest, this irrational relationship with empirical questions makes perfect sense. The authors write, quote, what any individual member of the public thinks about the reality of climate change, the hazards of nuclear waste disposal, the efficacy of gun control, is too inconsequential to influence the risk that that person or anyone he or she cares about faces. Nevertheless, given what positions on these issues signify about a person's defining commitments, forming a belief at odds with the one that predominates on it within important affinity groups of which such a person is a member could expose him or her to an array of highly unpleasant consequences. Thus, like, we know that it's radically consequential what in general public policy is about climate change or gun policy or something. You know, these are hugely important questions. But the impact of one individual person's opinion – feels small enough that you – basically the consequences of that are almost irrelevant. It's like what's really relevant is how is this affecting me in my day-to-day? And how it's primarily affecting you in your day-to-day is the social consequences of the beliefs you express. But obviously, that's not what we want, right? Like, We want everybody making rational decisions, having correct empirical information to reason from. Of course, they're still going to argue about political values, but at least having everybody accept the same set of correct facts when correct facts are on the table.
2: Right. I mean, a lot of it uh, kind of comes down to the fact that we are a short-sighted species that can uh, you know, barely uh, see beyond our own horizon, But but we are attempting to see beyond that horizon. We are trying to... To, to maintain uh, a world or create a world that can be sustained uh, in some fashion. We, you know, the, the, the old adage, of course, is making uh, uh, thinking about your children and your grandchildren yeah. uh, when, when you're making decisions uh, such as these. But uh, historically, it's not the, the sort of thing that we're great at. As a species.
1: And yeah, and so it's clearly not enough just to tell people like, well, here's a problem with how you're probably thinking. You're probably doing identity protective cognition and you need to stop it. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> that, that that's just obviously not going
2: to work. As you're just asking somebody to shut their mind, their ears off. Like, yeah. like oh, yeah, they're really going to listen to you now, buddy.
1: Yeah, I mean, and they're, they're probably not even doing it on purpose, right? I mean, you and I are doing it sometimes. We're not doing it mm-hmm. on purpose. The people who do this, they're not doing it out of a, a will to deceive themselves is just happening is part of what the brain does even unconsciously. So the question is, could you do something external? Could you create a state of affairs that would change the incentive structure, do what the author said and somehow change the motivation? If you can't change the reasoning in motivated reasoning, maybe you can change the motivation in motivated reasoning. So here's one thing I'm thinking about. Most politically relevant numeracy is basically recreational, right? (laughs) Like you need to get the numbers right when you're calculating your bank balance. Mm -hmm. But if you get the numbers wrong when you're talking about gun control or climate change, there's no immediately detectable consequence to you as long as you get them wrong in the way that your social group approves of. And this is not true of every person in every context. For example, why do scientists working within their own fields – uh tend usually to get the numbers right of course not always but usually like regardless of whatever their political opinions are if they're doing work within their field they tend to get it right most of the time
2: well because there are going to be other scientists that are going to be attempting to uh uh to perform the same experiment to see if they get the same uh, results there're going yeah. to be people reading it and if they see the error they're going to uh, they're going to correct them on it Uh, I mean, that's part of the process. Yeah, there's a strong incentive to get the numbers
1: right. Failed numeracy in your own published research is potentially a major blow to your credibility, to your career, to your standing among your professional peers and stuff. So I wonder if it's possible to change the incentive structure for non-scientists to somehow be more like that. This might be just completely impossible fantasy. But is there a way you could make it so that getting the factually correct answer is incentivized in, in in the social situations of lay people, and arriving at conclusions in agreement with your social group is not especially incentivized. That maybe is that just a totally unrealistic hope? Can human nature change that much?
2: I mean, it does sound kind of daunting. Like you, like what kind of structure or system would? Um enforce that and then how does it you know how do you roll it out successfully
1: I'm some i'm sure some uh tech billionaire has some kind of nightmarish idea for an app that would do that but in fact would just destroy everything and make yeah it worse.
2: there are all sorts of sort of black mirror-esque uh, solutions that come to mind but they all have like a black mirror-esque twist where you can re- see how it would screw things up uh-huh. or where people would essentially rebel against it and say like you know what i don't i don't really want uh Facebook or Twitter or what have you coming along and calling me on things that I've said that were incorrect in the past. Maybe I'll just wipe my account instead of suffering that embarrassment. Yeah. Okay, here's another idea. Maybe some way to fight the motivation.
1: Perhaps this, social support networks and structures that are not dependent on ideological agreement. Like if people really strongly felt confident that their friendships and their work and family relationships were safe and would not suffer at all, no degree of alienation or weakening of relationships from disagreement over political issues, maybe that would remove the incentive. Does that make sense? Like if people felt that they could disagree with their social group and not, not risk anything by doing that, then there would so, no longer be a, uh, a protective motivation in
2: what beliefs you hold. So you're saying basically make our the, – these social groups making – they're more – making them more um, open to free discussion, more accepting of disagreement? I guess so. I mean that, that at least seems like a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe
1: the way – maybe one way of addressing that is not that you can really change the nature of people's family and friendship relationships like that all that much. But if you could have, I don't know, uh, supplemental social dynamics. Like this may be one thing that – community-style groups like church congregations and things like that are useful for uh, and that they provide sort of like – outside of the family and the small friend group, they provide like a backup social situation where you uh, you can retreat if you are feeling down in your other relationships. Though not to say that no cert, uh, church congregations have ever made people feel alienated for disagreeing. Oh, yeah.
2: Uh, I mean – I guess the thing, but is, uh, you know, I'm just saying, like supplemental social safety nets. I guess right. Well, I could see where different group. I mean, different social groups can serve as the the backup, depending on what's happening in your life. I mean, I can imagine a scenario in which certainly a church could be the the uh, the, the fallback, mm. but also scenarios in which a work social group could be the fallback, or just. Uh, you know, your 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 home life, so your home social, right. social your family can at times be the fallback. You know, well,
1: I, my friends are mad at me because of what I said about but uh, at least about nuclear, nuclear waste. <laughs> yeah, at least I'm doing
2: okay work. Uh I don't know. It like one of the ideas, it seems one of the ideas that comes to mind here is like you'd almost want to have like just social groups that are um more adherent to scientific consensus. I hate to come back to, to that, but uh because ultimately you've if, if that is not present in, uh, in one of these uh, social structures, I mean, it's, there's going to be a high possibility that some other factor uh, is going to be more pressing in the worldview. And certainly, one sees that in religious groups. I mean, not all religious groups, but there are certainly religious groups out there uh, that have uh, have beliefs that uh, run very counter to scientific consensus. Now, do they do so in a detrimental fashion? I mean, that's it's going to depend.
1: But. Yeah. Again, I don't. I mean, as with all these questions, like, is there any way to actually engineer that, or is that yeah. just impossible?
2: Well, no. I think we have we need to create a new religion. That's what I think we're coming <laughs> down to. You know. Uh, yeah the the an open discussion science first uh religion uh that can just uh, sweep across uh the the, the uh, sweep across the land from shore to shore and uh and and make a better world for the future
1: well, I'll let you carry the crook of priest and prophet on that one <laughs> uh but uh, okay here's maybe one more way another uh, basically I'm just offering different ways you could approach the motivation problem i don't know of any specifics that you could create, but here's another way of approaching mm-hmm. it. What if there is a way to shield facts from acquiring in the first place what Cahan and and co-authors call, quote, antagonistic cultural meanings? In other words, if you can't fix public understanding by making people better at science comprehension and you can't program people not to be incentivized first and foremost by a sense of partisan social belonging, maybe the best way to protect facts is to find a way to never let them become politically charged in the first place. Oh yes. Uh, if there's a if somebody could figure out a way to do that, or at least lessen the probability that would happen, that also seems like a very useful thing, a, a good way to fight this problem. But it may also be impossible because
2: there's again political incentive for people to
1: politicize certain issues.
2: Yeah, I believe Kahan has definitely talked about this before. Uh, I believe he touched on the idea of of not necessarily like outright preventing but like f- uh, identifying when it is beginning to take place uh-huh. and and finding ways to intervene and keep it from being so highly politicized because it's like, you know, barnacles building up on a ship or something, right? Yes.
1: Uh, like when you detect – maybe you have a, a process for when you detect that a an empirical scientific question is starting to become an issue of political significance. Suddenly what you want is to get all the politicians and political actors to stop talking about it immediately and instead get n- politically neutral celebrities and spokespeople and stuff to talk about it.
2: Yeah. I feel like that's a pretty good idea. I think it probably has a 33 and one-third percent chance of success. But if
1: you add that to the 46 <laughs> and one-half percent chance, then you're really getting Steinerific.
2: Yeah, you might get up to uh, to uh, 141 and two-thirds chance of uh, of winning.
1: You know, one of the things that, uh, that Kahan et al. write in their uh, paper that I thought was really interesting is that uh, they point out that uh, people, even when experts in other fields, are primarily, as humans, experts about, quote, identifying who knows what about what Mm -hmm. that sort of is the main way our brains work right that's like our primary capacity is figuring out who knows about what things
2: right yeah i mean to come back to sagan's uh point of view you know it's, it's it should be certainly less about trying to figure out who's the authority and just looking at who is at best an expert in a given field and being able to sort of way what they're saying and why they're saying it
1: but oftentimes we use this capacity of looking at who knows what about what not to figure out who has the real uh, who's got the best expertise to offer but it's who but with who, the
2: best expertise is saying what i want to hear said exactly yeah. yes who is saying what
1: i want to hear said or what my social group believes in the best way mm. so i can say it the same way Anyway, you geniuses out there who uh, who can think of more specific and pr- possibly effective ways to undercut the motivation part of motivated reasoning and uh, Im- politically relevant empirical questions, w- let us know. What are those ideas you have?
2: Indeed. This is one of those areas where this this uh, hypothesis is so new. I don't even think we probably have the science fiction to level at it. Yeah. So, so you, the listener, will be creating the science fiction uh, that might in some way inform what we actually do about it.
1: Yeah, and this whole field, identity protective cognition, in a way is still developing. So more research could change what seems to be true about it today. Mm -hmm. But... uh... I don't know, it's one of those where I feel like I'm very interested in this research but it's not necessarily encouraging. I I want to go back to the science comprehension thesis world. I I want to live in the place where you can just where you can just tell people more, share more knowledge with more enthusiasm, model the correct kinds of critical thinking and all that and uh and, and bring people aboard, but it's just not that easy,
2: is it? Right, or it's just not enough. Uh, yeah. I mean, it kind of comes back though again to uh, the Gita and and in other older works that taught about like self-awareness because that's ultimately what we're talking about is new ways to become aware of how our brains are working and how in some cases we – our brains, our minds are, are tricking ourselves into, um, into clinging to beliefs that simply don't hold up.
1: Yeah. Oh, and one of the things, of course, we've always got to mention. We mention this in <laughs> pretty much any time we talk about bias or something. You're sitting out there thinking right now, yeah, this is what other people do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, but it's clearly it's what us we all too. Do. We can yeah. all look to examples in our own lives—big ones, small ones, uh, ones you you can't recognize and don't even know you do. Yeah, exactly. Got to remove that plank. <laughs> All right, well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode. Uh, As always, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com because that is our mothership. That is where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts. There's also a tab at the top of the page uh, where you can go to our store and get all sorts of uh, cool merchandise, Uh, some of it show-specific like – the great basilisk, or the uh, the Cambrian life shirt. Uh, other other stuff is just uh, you know uh, has to do with our logo. But it's a great way to support our show if you want to spend a few bucks and get something cool to stick on your laptop or your shirt. Uh, on the other hand, if you want to support the show without spending a dime, just rate and review the show wherever you have the power to do so.
1: Thank you so much to our wonderful audio producers Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, with your ideas of how to uh, take the uh, motivation out of motivated numeracy and motivated reasoning. If you want to let us know where you listen from, how you found out about the show or suggest a topic for the future if I didn't already say that. Uh, either way, you can email us at blowthemind at